How are we doing now? Is that better? Am I on? All right, I need all the kids to come on down here and sit up on the platform for just a moment. I got a story I need to tell the kids. So if you're here and you're a kid, come on up here and sit up here. Get up right up on top here and sit facing me. I'm going to face you. They don't want to see. No, no, up on top, up on top. Yeah, you got it, bro. Do you want to go up there? You don't want to go up there. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, they're coming out of the balcony. I love it. Highways and byways. You guys can come up and sit behind them if you want to. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. So, here is the story. It's actually a true story. Here's what happened. There were three children that were brought up in a place called Guatemala. Has anybody ever heard of Guatemala before? It's in South America. It's a very, very poor country to start with. But these children didn't have any parents that could take care of them. So they were sent to an orphanage. And in this orphanage, it's already a poor country, It was a very, very poor place. And what would happen is oftentimes there wouldn't be enough food. And so what they would do is they would give every kid something, but it was never enough. So the kids were still hungry. So here's what happened. I have some friends in uh, Minnesota named Kevin and Tammy, and he is a banker, and he had a really good job, and he made a lot of money, and they had three kids of their own, but they wanted to, they felt like God wanted them to adopt some children from another country. So they went down there, and they found these three children from the same family in Guatemala, and they said, we have fallen in love with these kids and we want to adopt them. We want to make them our own kids. Now, I'll tell you something. To adopt a child from another country is very expensive. But it didn't matter because they had set their heart on them. They were willing to pay this huge price to get to, to, to have these children so that they could be their own children. So these three children moved to Minnesota. And I was the pastor then. They became part of our congregation. And they now lived in a house where there was always plenty of food. But you know what? Even though... They lived in that house, even though their new dad was very wealthy, even though there was plenty of food, it was very hard for them to think that way because they had been so afraid for so long. And so what they would do is every meal they would be eating, and while mom and dad weren't looking, they would hide food. They would wrap it up in their napkin and they would hide it. And for one whole year, and mom and dad would find the food. They'd find it hidden in different places. They'd find it hidden in their bedroom. They'd find it hidden under their covers. They'd find it hidden. And they would, they would get right face to face with these little children and say, buddy, you don't have to hide food. There's plenty of food now. 
There's always going to be enough now. You don't have to be afraid. But you know what? When fear gets in you, it's hard to get it out of you. And so they kept hiding the food. It took one full year before they could get it in their minds that there was enough food and that they didn't have to live afraid all the time. So here's what I'm going to be talking about today. The Bible says that we need to be renewed in our minds. How many of you guys have accepted Jesus? Raise your hand if you've accepted Jesus. Okay? When, when you accept Jesus, right away you become adopted. Jesus has already paid for us to be his children. He paid the highest price for us. He paid his own blood. So every one of you, immediately when you accept Jesus, become part of his house. You are safe. You are in the family of God. But the Bible says... Even though that's instantaneous, that it takes a while for our minds to catch up and us actually to think like children of God. And that's called the, the renewing of our mind. And that takes a while. So I want you guys to listen very closely today because God is trying to help our minds understand what it means to be his adopted children and what it means that God is our father and that we never have to be afraid. Does that sound okay? All right, give me five. After you've given me five, you can go back to your seat. Come on, right here, right here, right here. Yeah, come on, come on. All right, go, yeah, perfect. Whoa, yeah, go, yes, awesome, all right. Okay, I guess the adults can stand now in honor of God's word. So here we are, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I guess I'll just read it from the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... Something's wrong here. This is the NAS, even though it says NAV. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, or in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for speaking to us. Lord, this is such an important message. And I just pray, God, that you would help us grab a hold of what you're speaking in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I've titled the message this morning, Thinking Right. Right. 
So the last time I preached, it was on living sacrifices. It was, it was verse one. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. In view of what he's done for us, the first 11 chapters, therefore, because of 11 chapters of God's mercy, therefore, here is the right response. Offer your bodies to God. And then secondly, in, and don't, get, don't lose in view of his mercy. In view of his mercy, offer now your minds to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by a renewing of your mind. So point one is the process of renewal. Sometimes Christians, especially charismatics, think that this verse says that we are that God is going to uh, transform us by the removal of our minds, and that somehow the mind is the enemy of faith, and that we just need to stop thinking and and just believe, and and that there's no place for reason with faith. And that is absolutely not true. The Bible tells us to love God with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. It is not that faith is unreasonable. It's simply that faith transcends reason, because God transcends reason. But we are to actually engage our minds, and we're going to find out If you don't renew your mind, you're never going to walk in victory as a Christian. Okay, so in salvation, as I was saying to the children, immediately our spirits are made alive in Christ. We are born again. We're born of the second Adam. We're part of a new race. Our spirit that was dead is made alive by an act of the grace of God through faith. Here's the problem. Our minds are not instantaneously changed like our spirits are. We actually have to work with God through a process to renew our minds, to think the way God thinks, to think the way that God wants us to think. And that's a process that takes time. Now, immediately, your mind is changed about salvation. Your mind, you wouldn't have got saved if your mind wasn't changed. Hey, I can't save myself. You came to that logical conclusion. I am guilty before a holy God, and it actually makes a lot of sense that I can't get to him by my own works, and that Jesus came and died for me in my place, and I'm giving him my life so that he is my savior. That is a change of mind. You used to be your own savior. You used to be, it used to be about you being good enough. And now you've changed your mind about that. It, it's not about me being good enough. The gospel is, it's that Jesus was good enough and that he died in my place. He took the full punishment for my sins. And so we call getting saved when we come to that realization and we give our lives to Christ. But, but this walk is more than just salvation. Jesus said, uh, John 8, 31 and 32. 
He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth. Shall is a, an unfolding process and the truth shall set you free. It is a, a, a growing freedom as you and the truth become more and more friends. As you gain more and more truth, you will walk in more and more freedom. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. Here's what we've learned in Christianity. There's a difference between a believer and a disciple. A believer believes. That happens as a gift. That happens right up front. A disciple is a follower. It's somebody that is, it's their whole life. I am going to learn. I'm going to follow Jesus. I am going to continue with him. And so in Belize, we just had such a wonderful time with our young people, and God did a lot. But the last day's devotions, Derek did the morning devotions, he was very concerned about it lasting, about it not just being an experience, not just being a one-timer. And so he, he said, you guys got to continue in the word. We're, we're going to do 21 days. It takes 21 days to, to form a habit. And so we're going to, so the last 21 days, I get this text every single day from Derek. Sometimes early in the morning, sometimes when my phone's not with me, but it's near my wife who's asleep, the text, beep, and there it is. It's Derek. Read this today. Read this. 21 days. We did 21 chapters in John. Why? Because we've got to renew our minds. We've got to make this a lifestyle. This can't be a one-timer. We have to get into the Word of God that renews our minds. The great need for humility. Paul says here, don't think too highly of yourself. If if we think highly of ourselves and our current opinions, we're not going to grow much. Pastor Tom Alexander was here last Sunday. If you did not hear this message on Reproof, you need to listen to it. He talked about God reproving us and that this is the key to growth. And he gave the process. He said, God comes first with the still, small voice. That is always God's preference, is to speak to you directly, to Psalm 32, to guide you with my eye on you. I I want, it's the least intrusive way to change, is God just speaks to you, you read the word, the Holy Spirit speaks to you, and you say, yes, Lord, I receive that, I make the change. But if we don't listen to that, God's not like, well, I guess I don't want to change. No, God's so committed to us that he raises raises up the second voice, family and friends. And family and friends will say, uh, hey, this is a problem. This is an issue. You've got to watch out for this. And then if we don't listen to family and friends, then he raises up authorities. Now we've got bosses firing you. We've got policemen putting you in jail. We've got, we've, we've got another level. It's like the, the kid that says, I'm, I'm sick of mom and dad telling me what to do. I'm going to join the army. God, God, there's always another level. And then if we won't even listen to authorities, what happens is life just has to beat us up. Uh, God says this in Psalm 32. He says, 
I want to guide you with my eye on you. Don't be like a horse and a mule that will not draw near without bit and bridle. God will use the bit and bridle. God's got all the tools to bring you home and to get you. It's just a matter of when you learn it. You can learn it now or you can learn it later. Plan A is always better than plan B. Okay. So here's a little of my journey. I got saved. I was very excited about being saved. And I was preaching to everybody. I knew nothing, but I was telling everybody what I did know. And I was reading a proverb a day until I got to Proverbs chapter 18. And it said this in verse 2. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. And this, this, this hurt me. This verse hurt me because I realized that, that I just like to share what I thought. I said, God, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want my delight to be in me telling what I think. I want to delight in understanding. I want to humble myself. James 1.21, in humility, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Isaiah 66, 2. To this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. I think of Josiah. When he, when he read the word of God or it was read to him, he started trembling at the word of God because of the judgments that were coming on Israel that he read about. And, and he, he tore his, his clothes and he repented before God for the nation. And the prophet that, had, uh, that they, they had gone to about the, the book that they had found um, sent a word back to Josiah. God has been moved by your response to his word. And the judgment that has been prophesied will not happen in your lifetime. God, you have touched God by your response to his word. When God spoke, you trembled. And it, it has moved God. This is how we need to treat the word of God. In Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. It, it, when you become a Christian, you have to realize that God's ways are not your ways and God's thoughts are not your thoughts. And this, this is a difficult thing to grab a hold of because in almost every area of your life, the way you've been thinking needs to be corrected. That's a lot of correction. That's a lot, that's a lot of changes to make. But unless we renew our minds, we're not going to be able to walk in the Christian life. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a lot of confusion. You know, I thought Christianity was the answer. I thought it was the truth. But I'm just like this. Well, it's because we need to renew our minds. So the word transformation here is the word that we, the, we get the English word metamorphosis from. It is... Uh, it, this is the dictionary gen, uh, definition. A change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. I thought that was pretty good for Webster's Dictionary to include supernatural means. 
changing from one thing into another thing. This is, a, a metamorphosis is a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It's, it's one thing that becomes another thing. It is a tadpole becoming a frog. It's one, one thing, and this is different, but it came from that, and it came out of that. And this is the word that's used for transformation. We are being transformed from within. We are being transformed. We are becoming something other than mere people. God is making a new race. And we are being transformed. So you can be a caterpillar saved by grace and just make your identity in just being this caterpillar saved by grace or you can renew your mind and you can become that butterfly. You, you, we, can, we can use our theology to hinder us. We can believe that we could just refuse to believe anymore than God. This is just about me be a sinner getting saved by grace. Just a sinner saved by grace. Folks, we're not just. Thank God we're sinners saved by grace. But we're not just sinners saved by grace. We are the favored sons and daughters of God. Dr. Carolyn Leaf wrote a book called Switch on Your Brain. Her doctorate is in epigenics, which is, she's a pathologist specializing in traumatic brain injuries. And they have found so much stuff out about our brains. It's just astonishing. Listen to what she says. Through our thoughts... We can be our own microsurgeons as we make choices that will change the circuits in our brains. We are designed to do our own brain surgery and rewire our brains by thinking and by choosing to renew our minds. Okay, so in, in our frontal lobe is the potential for every one of us not, not just to think, but to examine what we are currently thinking. That we can actually look at what we're thinking and decide to think something different. And that when we start thinking something different, when we... Have you ever heard changing your mind? <laughs> Here's what they found out. Oh my, you're actually changing your mind. You, when you start thinking along a different pattern your brain actually gets rewired to think that way. This is what they found out. People have been stunned by pornography. And how does pornography grab a hold of so many men and it oppresses them and they can't get free from it? Why can't they just say no? Well, here's what they found out about the brain. They make channels in their brain that go that way. That's why it's very hard to break an addiction. You're, you're wired to go there. You're, it's, you don't even have to think about it. You just go there. Boom. And to break that wiring, you have to rewire yourself. You have to step back. You have to look at how you've been thinking. You have to own, that's not how I want to think. That's the wrong way to think. You have to make a conscious choice. I'm going to start thinking something different. And as you do that over time, well, we've learned this with strokes. 
You, you can lose half your body with a stroke where you can't move anything. And you think, well, that's it. You just, you, now you're going to just have half your body. No, 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 no. The brain's an amazing thing. Right now, you can't get connections down to all this, but the brain will find a way. And that's why they do physical therapy. And they got you doing this thing because something just needs to click up here. And the brain will find a way. You can rewire your your, your, your uh, mind. Your brain can get rewired so that you lost speech and now you can speak again. You lost movement. Now you can move again. It is absolutely amazing. Here's what's, here's what's happened. Science has proven that the word of God is true. You can renew your mind. You are not a victim to your DNA. You are not a victim to this is who I am. This is how I've been wired. And I have to go this way. I have to be this way. I have to be this way. No, you're going that way now. And yeah, you probably were born with some faulty DNA. Because sin is in the world. But you and I, through God's grace, can start this process of rewiring our minds for God's victory in Christ. Okay, that's the process of renewal. Now we're on point two. Do not be conformed to the world. One translation says it this way. Do not be squeezed into the world's mold. The world has a mold. The world's way of thinking, and when I say the world, we're not talking about the physical world. We're talking about the system, the world system that is under the influence of darkness. Here is one of the most clear passages about the world's thinking. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, now now we get the definition of the world. It's not about mountains and rivers and chipmunks. Here's, Here's what the world is, defined by John. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes... And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So we're, we're coming out of the world's thinking, we're being renewed in God's thinking, and through that we're proving the will of God that lasts forever. Okay, so let's talk about the world's thinking, the lust of the flesh. Let's start there. The lust of the flesh simply means this, meeting my bodily appetites at the expense of my spiritual life. So God in his goodness, has given us taste buds. He's given us a sense of smell. It wasn't enough for God that we would just eat. He wanted us to enjoy eating. He wanted this to be another area where we thankfully receive food and that we can enjoy food. And he gave us the means. And if you've ever studied taste buds, it's amazing how it all works for our Enjoyment. 
But when our appetites become more important to us than our spiritual life, we we grieve the Holy Spirit. So we have the story given to us of Esau and Jacob. Two brothers, Esau's older, Esau has the birthright, which has tremendous spiritual significance. But the problem with the birthright, when you're young, it's not doing anything for you right now. It's, it's got, it, it, is, it guarantees a future, but for right now, it's doing nothing for you. And so Esau comes in from the field and he's starving. And Jacob, interestingly enough, Jacob's name means deceiver. So in this picture, he is, he is a, a, a type, a shadow of the deceiver. And he knows Esau's favorite food. And he gets it cooking. And he's got this pot going of stew. And he sees Esau coming. He can imagine how hungry he is. And he starts waving the smell towards Esau. And Esau gets around that stew. And he's just like, ooh, mm, mm, I need some of that stew. And Jacob's like, wonderful, because I made it for you. But before I give you your bowl of stew, you need to give me your birthright. Now we have a choice that has to be made. Here's what Esau says to himself. I I don't know what my birthright is going to do for me if I die of hunger. I am dying. I'm so hungry. I am just dying. I'm so hungry. I'm dying of starvation. Has any kid ever said that to his mom? Here's what, here's what happened. When you say I'm dying of starvation in America, you're not dying of starvation. You're, you're, you haven't had a meal in three hours. It's probably what it is. So he sells his birthright for one single meal. So we experience the temptations in the desert, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The enemy comes to Jesus, who he knows is hungry. And he says, turn this stone into bread. Use your power as God and make this stone bread. And (coughs) Jesus says this. Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I have food, he says to his disciples, that you do not know of. My food is to do the will of God. I'm hungry, I eat food, but my life is not in natural food, natural appetites. I can wait until God provides it. I do not have to get it for myself. I don't need to take it for myself at the expense of my spiritual life. So what's the stew today? If you're in America, if you're a young person in America, actually any age in America, what is the stew that the deceiver is Stirring and wafting 
You know what I would, I would say it is? Sex before marriage. Hollywood is on an absolute mission to convince young people that sex before marriage is fine. It not, it's not just fine, it's your right. In fact, you're, you're, you're not going to be whole if you don't have sex before marriage. And you don't really love that woman unless you've had sex with her. And, and he doesn't really love you and, if, if he, and you can't for sure own him unless you have sex with him. And, and there's all of this pressure to have sex. There's all this pressure to go ahead and compromise. There's a thousand ways to do it. There's a, you, 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 that we've got the internet, we've got all of these things and, and all of these messages are eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. And there's really only one thing in the way. There's just one little thing in the way, the word of God. That God's made it very clear that sex is for marriage. God has put sex in marriage as a little reward for the commitment, the difficult commitment, lifelong commitment of marriage. God is the one that made sex fun. God is the one that gave all those hormones, all those body parts that make it thrilling, that make it orgasmic, that make it exciting. Heaven forbid, are you really saying this in church? Yes, I am. This is how we were designed, folks. We're sexual beings. God is the one. He purposely designed it. He knew this is not just for recreation. This is for this secret pleasure that a married couple is going to enjoy together that's going to strengthen them through all of their fights, through all of their weariness, through all of the the difficulty. He didn't want it to be a joyless commitment. He wanted there to be this pleasure within marriage. So he's the one that made it that way. So the enemy says, take it, take it, take it soon. Take it sooner. Give me your Bible. Say the Bible's not true. Give me the Bible make a way that the Bible doesn't really say that or the Bible doesn't, isn't relevant for today or the Bible doesn't understand or God doesn't love me or he would know that I can't resist this, da 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 A thousand justifications. He's got that stew going. He wants, he wants, it, it doesn't change. When you commit sin, it doesn't change God's love for you. It just, his presence has to back off. And when, you, when his presence is backed off, everything about Christianity is hard. Everything about Christianity, you end up going through the motions and you end up with two lives. You've got church, which is boring, and you've got the rest of it, because the church without the presence of God is boring. You don't have the engine. And so the enemy says, you need to meet your bodily appetites whatever the cost to your spiritual life. It's a lie, and he's a deceiver. That's the lust of the flesh. Let's talk about the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is wanting something someone else has and doing whatever I need to do to get it. I'm looking around, and I see what other people have. 
Ahab looks around and he sees this vineyard, this really cool vineyard, and he starts thinking about that vineyard, and he's like, I need to, I want to have that vineyard for myself. I'm the king. I should be able to get whatever I want to. And, and he does a little research and he finds out this little guy named Naboth owns the vineyard. And he goes to Naboth and he says, I want your vineyard. Tell me, what it, tell me what it's worth and I will pay you that because I, I want your vineyard. And Naboth says, you know, this has been in the family my whole life. I, I would be selling out my family to give you this vineyard. It's, it's just not for sale. Ahab just becomes so discouraged by this because he wants to have this vineyard and he can't be happy without it. And so he's just sad all the time. And finally, Jezebel, his wife comes and says, why are you so sad? He says, because I want Naboth's vineyard. He won't give it to me. She's like, we'll get that vineyard. Don't worry. And so she kills off Naboth and he gets to go possess the vineyard that's going to make him happy. And as he's enjoying his new vineyard, uh, God sends a prophet there and says, I know exactly what you did. But you know what? Ahab is a bad guy. So let's not use Ahab. Let's talk about David. David's, on, David's in the palace. Everybody else is off at war. He's looking around and he sees somebody else's wife. And all of a sudden he convinces himself that he can't be happy without her. And he finds out the details and the details are so horrible. This, is, this isn't just anybody's wife. This is Uriah the Hittite. He's one of David's mighty men. He's in the list of the mighty men. He's one of the guys that has given his life for David and for Israel over and over again. But David wants her. He can't help himself. He wants her. And because he's the king, it's in his power to get whatever he wants. And so he arranges to, to, to get her for his own. And then she gets pregnant, and then he has to kill Uriah to cover up. This. It's just a disaster, and God has to send a prophet again. You know what the prophet says to David? This is one of the saddest verses in Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 12, here's what he says. God speaking to David, the man after his own heart. He says, David, how could you? I gave you Saul's kingdom. I gave you wives. I gave you lands. I gave you palaces. I gave all of this to you. And if this wasn't enough, all you needed to do is ask. I could give you more things like it. But you have done this. You have caused my enemies to blaspheme against me. You have caught, you are my guy. And now everybody that knows you're my guy and sees what you've done is now convinced God isn't real. God doesn't exist. God doesn't even make a difference. They are blaspheming because of your actions. Listen to what James says. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James says the same thing that God said to David. 
James said, listen, if you want something, if you see what somebody else has and it's desirable to you, know this. God's not a withholder. He withholds no good thing from those that walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. He's not a withholder. God could give it to you. Ask him. But the lust of the eyes has to have it now. So I'm going to kill. I'm going to fight. I'm going to quarrel. I'm going to get my way. And I'm going to get my way now. (laughs) This is horrible. But I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. So we had a fight last week. This is how small things are. The dishes... The dishwasher was not completely full, but we were going to have guests over. And I said, honey, I want to run the dishwasher without it being full. And Alice said, no, we're going to wait until it's full. And we, so we're having this argument over it. Christina, on the worship team, she kind of acts as the mediator. And she comes in and she says, she says to mom, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how important is this? And Alice says, you know, like a five. And she says, dad, how important is it to you? And I said, (laughs) 11.8. So, so we ran the dishwasher. That's your pastor right there. You just, you just learned something. Things can become very important that are not that important. We've got to have them now. We're willing to argue. We're willing to fight instead of humble ourselves and wait for God's timing. Jesus. Is taken to the top of. A high mountain and shown the whole world. And his eyes view everything. And Satan says to him, this has been given to me. This has been, the word is betrayed over to me. God gave it to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they didn't realize it, but they were giving dominion of the world to darkness. And he said, this has been betrayed over to me. And I can give it to whoever I want to. If you bow down and worship me, I will give you this. Did you notice that the the enemy offers you something? Something, it's actually something God was going to give Jesus. He just offered it early with a shortcut. Here's a way you don't have to wait. Here's a way you don't have to suffer. I'll give it to you now. Here, all of the, everything you want, all that your eyes can see. And Jesus says this, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Did you notice Jesus' defense to every attack of the enemy is, it is written? He takes the word of God, what the word of God says, and he uses it like a sword against the enemy. Renewing our minds according to the word of God. And then finally, the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life is when we take God's place as judge Assuming my opinion is right, so I am free to judge God and man. So Jesus, in Matthew 16, 
calls Peter the rock and gives him the keys. I'm giving you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. I'm, I'm making you in charge of the, the church. And, and, and you have received this revelation that I am the Christ, the son of God. And, and that revelation is the bedrock. And you're the first stone. You're the small rock. I'm going to call you Peter instead of Simon. And so he just receives this tremendous honor. Three verses later, Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples about his coming suffering, that he's going to the cross, that he is going to die. And Peter steps in as the, as the head of the church. This will never happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the interests of man and not the interests of God. Whenever you're telling God that he's wrong, something got messed up. Whenever you, whenever you, what is Peter doing? Peter is not trying to just protect Jesus. He's trying to protect himself. He doesn't want to believe anybody has to suffer. That God's way would never include suffering. That's, that's man's interest. Man's interest always preserves us so that we are comfortable. This won't happen to you. This won't happen to me. This is why Job's friends are so insistent that what's happening to Job is not of God. It's a judgment from God because he's sinned is because it's about their own lives. They, they don't ever want anything bad to happen to them. So this can't be something that happens to good people. Taking God's place. Being willing to make judgments about God. The, the enemy takes Jesus, the third temptation, to the top of the temple and says to Jesus, jump off the temple and God will have to catch you because he, he has promised. It's Psalm 91. The devil quotes Psalm 91. His angels, he's given his angels to bear you up, to, to guard you so that you will, you will not stumble. Jesus, make God perform for you. Force his hand to perform. And here's even a Bible verse that proves that God's going to have to do whatever you tell him to do. Jesus said, Don't, it's, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. Do you know that the enemy can use scripture? Did you know that rat, rat poison is 99% food? 99% food, it's only 1% poison. Why? You, you use it. You use the food to draw. If it was, if it was 100% poison, no rat would go near it. You've you got to draw them in. So the enemy is more than willing to use scripture to try to bind up, misquote, and put us in God's place where God has to prove himself to us. And then judging others. Being in God's place and judging others. Look at Acts 14, 2. It says, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Acts 14, 2. They refused 
to believe the good news. They refuse to believe God's love for everybody. They refuse to believe Christ's redemption for everybody. And in this place of instead of viewing God's mercy, rejecting God's mercy, their minds, their minds became poisoned. And they started speaking that poison and poisoning the Gentiles against the believers. Did you know that you can have not just a renewed mind, you can have a poisoned mind? This is really important for us to believe this. What does it look like to have a poisoned mind? Well, the Bible says this. Revelation 12.10, it says that the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. The accuser who accuses them day and night. Satan is an accuser. And he has an accusation against every single person here. That you're not good enough, that you've failed, that you've sinned, that you've... And, 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 and those accusations are very powerful, and here's why. They're true. They're true. He doesn't make up something that you've never done and say you've done this. He says things you have done. And he uses those accusations, and he grounds us by the truth of those accusations. But he never tells you the whole truth. You got to get to the whole truth to get free. Because the next verse says this, and they overcame him as the accuser by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony about that blood. This is the secret. The whole truth is that God loves me and Christ died for me. It's not just that I've sinned and fall short and have messed up, and have been conformed to the world in this way, that way. The whole truth is that God loves us. So here it is, Hebrews 12. It it says that we have now come to, this is verse 24, we have now come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to his shed blood, which speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. Hebrews chapter 12. Now to unpack that, you've got to start out with the blood of Abel. Here's what happened. Cain kills his brother Abel, and, and God comes to Cain and says, your brother's blood is crying out to me. It's crying out to me of your guilt. It is speaking. The blood you shed is speaking to me. You are guilty. And so Cain fled from the presence of the Lord. He was under a judgment, and he became a restless wanderer on the face of the earth. Okay? So Jesus' blood speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. So Jesus' blood is speaking to God too. What is it saying to God? What is the blood of Jesus saying to God about you and me? Here's what it's saying. I have died for them. I want them to come home. I've made a way into your presence. They don't have to flee from the presence. They can flee to the presence of God. They can live in me, and instead of being restless wanderers on the face of the earth, they, I've got a purpose for every single one of them. They get rest in my presence, and then they get a life that is filled with purpose. Instead of restless wanderers that are just kind of wandering around. How many know that most people are just wandering around like this in their life? Paying their bills, having their bar time, 
watching TV. They got their favorite show. And we're just going around and around and around, restless the whole time. Restless, 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 restless. That's how most people live. Jesus' blood is speaking, not just about you, about every single human being. They are valuable. I have paid for them. I, am, I have made a way for them to flee to my presence. I've taken the curse. I've taken the judgment. I want their lives to no longer be wandering around. I want to give them purpose in my presence. But if you refuse to believe, then all you're left with is the enemy's accusations about you and about others. And you end up poisoning people about one another. You think the worst of everybody. You find out what's wrong, and I'm going to speak my mind because it's the truth. I speak the truth. You're not speaking the whole truth. Because the whole truth doesn't just include what they did wrong. It's what Jesus did right. It's Jesus' love for them. It's Jesus' plan of redemption for them. And there's no one past that. We are not each other's judge. When it's the boastful pride of life that puts us in that position. So here we go. Point three. We're almost done. How do you renew your mind? You start this way. Jesus forgives us of every worldly thing we have done. You, will, you can't go right to the renewing of your mind without taking care of yesterday's baggage. It all starts by you coming to the blood, by you fleeing to the presence, by you owning your sin, owning the lust of the flesh, owning the lust of the eyes, owning your boastful pride, owning it. Like Tom Alexander said, you, this whole thing starts with you agreeing with God about what's wrong and just confessing it. And not just confessing what's wrong, confessing that Jesus died for me. That's how it starts. you got to start with a clean slate. Otherwise, the enemy will always reach into your past and always bring you back down. And you'll always, your life isn't behind you, folks. It's in front of you. There's a reason why Paul said, there's one thing I do. I press on. I'm going forward. Your life isn't back there. Your life is forward. Pastor Tom, I I ruined people. I did this, I did that. I can never forgive myself. You know what? If God can forgive you, what are you saying? You're better than God? You're so horrible that God can't even forgive. No, God can forgive you. That's why Jesus died. The question is, is whether you're willing to let go of your identity in your shame and regret and really pride that wants to, you want to punish yourself because you deserve it. I I deserve justice. I've made others feel bad. I deserve to feel bad. That's a bypassing the cross, folks. You're not, you're, you're not the savior. Jesus is. Let Jesus die for you. Let him take the punishment for you. Because your life is ahead of you. And then secondly, he gives us his identity as favored children. This, this, this has changed me. God says to Jesus, Matthew three seventeen, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. This is before he started his ministry. Then he immediately goes out into the wilderness and the devil tempts him. Notice how the temptations start. If you are the son of God, 
prove it. What is the enemy doing? Before he offers the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, he sows insecurity into the identity. He says, if, where God has said, this is who you are, this is who you are, Jesus, knowing that he's a favored son, knowing that he's loved, knows that he can resist this. He doesn't have to change that bread because the father loves him. He's well provided for. He's not the orphan that has got to save up food. The father will provide for him in his time. He will not die in this desert because he's a favored son. He does not need to take the kingdoms of this world now. The father will give him everything he asked for in his time. And he's not going to do a shortcut around because God's plan is bigger than just what I get. It's about me developing as a person. It's me going through things. I trust God with my development. I trust God with his provision for me in his time. I am a favored son, not an orphan that doesn't have enough, that... If you are a son, you got to prove it. you gotta, you got to make something happen. No, I have nothing to prove f- to people, and I have nothing to gain from people. If you are the son of God, then cast yourself down and make God prove himself to you. No, I am a favored son. I'm not trying to prove that I'm a son. This is my gift. God does not have to perform something for me to believe in him. I am this. I am resting in my father's love. This is the life of favored children. God wants to break the orphan spirit, guys. Leslie Alexander did a whole message. If you can go on the internet and hear it, it was amazing on the difference between the orphan mindset and the favored child mindset. So here's my last thing. As I was preparing this, I just became very conscious. There are some, some that are going to say, my mind is so poisoned I just wish I didn't have this mind. I I can't look at others without judging them. I can't look at the things in the world and not judge God. I'm just, I, I, I just wish I didn't have this mind. I wish I could just have a different mind. Here's, here's what I feel like the Lord gave me. The children of Israel are coming out of Egypt. And they start drinking from this river and the water is bitter. And they cry out to Moses and they say, this water is bitter. This water has been poisoned. And Moses cries out to God. This is Exodus fifteen twenty five, And God doesn't show him a different water source. God doesn't say, yeah, that one's bitter. Now, I've got this other river or this other lake. Send them over here. That's not what God shows him. Do you know what God shows him? He doesn't show him another water source. He shows him a tree. He shows him a tree. And he says, cut down this tree and throw the tree in the water. And I will redeem that water. I will make that water sweet. I will make that water drinkable. 
This foreshadows the cross. This foreshadows God's plan of redemption. He is able to take whatever is poisoned in you, whatever has been poisoned in me, no matter how long the poison's been there, maybe it's been there for generations, and Jesus hung on a tree. And he says, bring bring your poisonous thoughts to my tree. I am going to give you my mind. I am going to give you my thoughts. Not from the outside. That's the, all the world has is from the outside conforming you. I've got, the, it's already in you. I am in you. My thoughts are already in you. You just have to start agreeing with them. You need to take time to meditate on them. This is in you. This life is in you if you're a believer. Okay, so can we have the worship team come? So maybe we better start with this. Can we have every head bowed and every eye closed? I've got two groups of people I want to pray for. Here's the first group. You are here today and it is news to you. It is news to you that God loves you and that Jesus died for you on the cross. Maybe you've been around church and you've heard it before, but it's never really applied to you. Maybe you've never really seen yourself as that bad of a person or that bad of a sinner, but today during this message, the Holy Spirit's made it very clear. You've sinned. You've taken the bait. You've drank the stew. You've looked over the fence with your eyes. You've engaged in that boastful pride of life where you judge God and judge people and think it's your right to do so. And and the only reason why he brings that conviction is because he wants to forgive us. He died for us. He died on a tree to save us. The Bible says that today Jesus stands at the door of every human heart knocking. He loves us, so he doesn't push the door open and make us. He, He knocks. He can knock loudly. But he's only knocking. You have to open the door. You have to say, yes, Jesus, come in and save me. Yes, Jesus, I give you my poison. I give you my sin. I receive your salvation. If that is you today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, because it's between you and God, but I, I do like to help people pray. So if this is you, would you raise your hand real high right now, long enough for me to see it? See that hand, God bless you. I see this hand. I see this hand, God bless you. I see this hand over here. I see this hand over here. God bless you. You can put those down. Looking in the balcony. I see you in the back of the balcony. God bless you. Anybody else by upraised hand? We're going to pray in just a moment. If everybody that raised their hand would just put your hand over your heart right now and pray something like this. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Jesus, I receive your love. Lord, I don't want to refuse to believe. I want to view your love and your mercy and live viewing that love and mercy every single day. I give you my poison. I give you my sin. I give you my rebellion. I give you my pride. Save me, Jesus. I receive you now by faith. Amen. Hallelujah. Could we stand together? Here's the second call. You are definitely saved. 
you have given your life to Christ. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but there's poison in there. Maybe the poison is towards your spouse. And you've become your spouse's judge. Maybe the poison is towards your children. Why can't they just do what I tell them to do? Why can't they just line up? Why can't they just... And, and you, you, you've got this rough edge that hasn't considered them in view of God's love and redemption that, that creates a gentleness in us. And today you want, you want God to take the poison out. You want to you wanna throw the tree into that river. Would you just open your arms like this in the receive position? We're going to pray. Lord, I love you. We love you here today. You're so good. Lord, I know that there are some here today that have been so frustrated about not being able to stop judging and to stop their thoughts that they've they've almost given up because this can works for other people but it doesn't work for me Jesus today we're owning the poison we're bringing the poison to your cross And Lord, we're not just confessing our poison. We are confessing that we are your favored children and that your very DNA is in us, that the very life of God is in us and that that which has to happen doesn't happen from the outside. It happens from the inside. Now, Spirit of God, rise. Fill our thoughts with redemption. Fill our thoughts towards our spouses and towards our children and towards our relatives and towards our work associates. Lord, help us to see this world in view of your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you never stopped loving me and you've never stopped loving anybody I know. Help us, God. Now, Lord, like the The doctor pulls the venom out, draws out the poison so that a wound can heal. Would you just draw poison out of all of us today? We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. Bless you. Have a great week.